The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. read these words, what I'm going to advise or ask is that you stop and think of how we view Christmas through sort of a gauzy, sentimental curtain, I think, sometimes, without thinking about the hard realities that were involved, the hard choice that Joseph had to make, the hard circumstances in which Mary gave birth in, in a stable with no medical help no woman to comfort her. There were many hard things occurring, and we're looking particularly today at Joseph and the decisions he had to make. Listen to God's holy word. Matthew 1, beginning at 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's own holy word. I'm thinking about the fact that many of us, and I suppose from midlife onward, this is especially a thought that people have, consider their lives and wonder if they are of any personal significance. I think when you're young, it's easy to be full of boundless optimism and believe you'll go out and take the world by its tail and have a very significant life and achieve all your goals and earn lots of money and be very happy. Somewhere along the way, reality begins to temper those things. And perhaps you start to ask, even if you're surrounded with some good friends and a good family, am I really of any importance to anybody? If I wasn't here, would anyone know the difference? Now, I don't intend to raise George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. You can watch that one for yourself. But have you ever asked yourself, do I really make a difference? Am I an influencer? And what is my influence, and upon whom? 
Here's something I took a long time to discover, a very simple lesson about the Bible. God has a habit of working with little people, with nobodies. We don't even stop and consider that everyone who's a great name practically in the Old Testament didn't start out as having a great name. Abraham was a nobody. Moses was a nobody. In fact, he protested to God, you can't use me, I can't speak, here are all the reasons why I'm not eligible. And God said, you can obey me, just do that and I'll use you. David was the least in his family. They didn't even call him in to to be considered when Samuel the prophet came through to review the different sons of the family. David was the little guy out in the field of no consequence. Think of others, Ruth, Mary, Peter, people who weren't very much when God first called them and gave them a challenge to trust him and let themselves be used for some area of immense influence on other people if they would only trust him and be his channel. I look for one of the favorites of mine of all these lowly people, Someone so lowly that in his significant role, we never have recorded a single word that he speaks. But Joseph of the New Testament is certainly a person to think about how God used him. I ask you to look at Matthew 1.18 and notice here as a first point today, an almost broken marriage before the manger. We read such a simple statement. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That sentence has to be inspired by God. I don't know how any human being could possibly pack as much information into a sentence as that sentence contains. First of all, from that sentence, you need to know about a first century Jewish betrothal rite is quite different than engagement as you know it in our society today. It was a contractual relationship. Usually the parents were involved. The parents might have been so involved that quite possibly the future husband and wife really didn't know each other very well. But the families had decided, well, this girl and this young man will be fine for each other, and they formed a legal contract called the Kiddushan. And this contract caused that young man and young woman to enter into a binding legal relationship, usually a year in duration, which could only be broken by a decree of divorce. Now, we know about engagements today. You know, you exchange a diamond ring. Oh, I'm going to get married. When's the date? Two months later, you break up. All right. Not too much damage done. You don't have to go to court or anything else to do that. Besides some tears and some emotions, it's over with. Well, this was a legal betrothal. Young girls came into this as young as 13 and 14 years old. Quite commonly, they would have been betrothed and married well before 20 in most cases. We don't know Joseph's age or Mary's, but Joseph, too, probably wasn't more than 20 or early 20s. He already was established in a trade, but undoubtedly still not a fully mature man. And the whole arrangement of the betrothal was to set these, this couple up. They, they could even be called legally husband and wife, but they did not live together. 
fact, they very strictly did not live together. And they ought not to have sexual relations in that time. And the families were sort of the guardians of that. And yet they were bound to each other by law. So that if there should be a pregnancy, there was going to be a scandal. Now the marriage might go ahead, assuming, of course, that the husband was the, the, the betrothed man, was the, the father of the child. It could go ahead. But if, indeed, the, the man was not the father of the child, that was the end. That was it. The laws for divorce by adultery came to, into play. And believe me, that was a terrible thing for a woman. In a society where a, a woman didn't have a career, a way to independently support herself, she probably was not going to get married very easily, again, because now she had a black mark on her. She had sinned, or so everybody would have thought, even if perhaps someone forced himself on her. Nevertheless, she bore the child, and the shadow was on her character, and she would have a tough time. She'd have to find a, her father, her brother, her cousin, somebody, an uncle, who would perhaps take her into his household. And actually, it was even worse, because in Old Testament times, if there was real adultery there, the penalty of death was prescribed. Although, by New Testament days, that was generally being overlooked. Think of that. Contrast that whole custom and its emphasis on not having casual sexual relationships, but only that sex belonged rightly, as the Bible teaches, within the relationship of a husband and wife. Think of that compared to our America where premarital sex is so taken for granted that in every movie and television show it's demonstrated in some way or other and with smirking or some kind of very direct presentation, where a million young women bear children out of wedlock at least that many every year. You know, I really think the predicament that Mary and Joseph were in is something that has lost its potential for shock especially to young people today. They would say, what's the big deal? We as pastors of this conservative church have actually, once in a while, this isn't too common, but we have actually encountered people who would be otherwise eligible for us to marry them, that is, their members or children of members of this church. And we come to say, all right, will we do a wedding? And we say, oh, you're living together. We won't do the wedding while you're living together. What? I've actually had stern arguments on that score from young people who say, oh, we have to save rent. Uh-huh. Well, I'm not going to go down that path. But there are people who seem to be surprised today that the Bible actually has something to say about sexuality outside of marriage. It wasn't so long ago in our society that we would talk about children born in that way, and we would say illegitimate children. When did you last hear that? I've noticed that phrase has been carefully weeded out of our society because, I suppose, because it seems to sort of cast blame or perhaps shame on the mother, particularly, of that child. Seems to say that she's somehow beyond the law and make her seem like a bad person, which no one's desiring to do, to castigate a person any more than necessary. And yet here we have single motherhood, an enormous social problem, enormous. 
In some ways, it's at the root of most of our social problems, including crime and everything else you want to name. And we won't even talk about it. We say, well, we just have to deal with the children that come as they come. Well, here was Mary's pregnancy as a personal and social disaster. For Mary, certainly, if Joseph did what the law allowed him to do. Now, we don't have any record of a conversation between Joseph and Mary, but certainly she conveyed something to him about what God had revealed to her by the angel. (laughs) I've seen different dramatizations, you know, the Bible movies show this conversation. Can you imagine being Joseph? And having a young woman, whether they were deeply in love or whether this was maybe more of a socially arranged marriage, we don't know for sure. But can you imagine hearing from a young woman, Joseph, I'm going to have a child. And it's not your child, of course. And it's not any other man's child. It's God's child. The Holy Spirit of God has caused me to be pregnant with this child. Can you imagine being Joseph? How would you react? Joseph certainly, I would think, assumed, first and foremost, that some man perhaps had attacked Mary and forced himself on her. And she was so overcome by shame of that that she couldn't admit the truth. There are those skeptics who love to nourish the totally baseless tale that a Roman soldier attacked Mary, and that's how she was impregnated. They even give him a name, Panthera. I don't even know where that ridiculous thing comes from. It has no historical basis. But there are those who would try to say something like that. Well, Mary just couldn't face up to. She was in denial. She couldn't face what had really happened. Malcolm Mudge is a name you might have heard. He's been gone from us now for quite a while, but Muggeridge was in the late 20th century a social critic in England, a man who grew up in a very cynical vein. He had kind of a a very pointed pen and could poke holes in almost anything in society. But then late in his life, he came to Christ, and he wrote some wonderful things about Christianity late in his time. Here's something Muggeridge wrote about this whole situation. He said, Mary's pregnancy happening in poor circumstances and with the father unknown, would to us have been an obvious case for an abortion. And her talk of being conceived by the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed her quickly enough towards psychiatric treatment and would have made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, said Muggeridge, our generation, needing a Savior more perhaps than any generation that has ever existed proves itself to be too intolerant in the dogmas of our science, our psychology, and our politics to have allowed this one to have been born. What a dilemma. Do you realize Joseph never speaks? You know, we can only try to imagine his inward life. His actions do all his talking, and yet it's not hard to imagine him embarrassed, bitterly disappointed, and possibly quite outraged. And yet he was honorable. And he wanted to honor not only the law of God, but this young woman. I think he had deep compassion in his heart. He's called a righteous man, a man who saw the law of God and wanted to live according to it, not just by its letter, but by its spirit. And so Joseph, it says, sought to act quietly within what the law allowed, sparing Mary as much embarrassment as he could. But there was no question what he was ready to do. 
he was ready to break the relationship and walk away. Divorce was Joseph's conclusion. A full marriage between them would never have happened if he simply did what the conscience of a righteous man allowed him to do and was leading him to do. Now, secondly, I want to talk for a moment about the biblical allowances made for divorce. The Bible is a pro-marriage book. It's about covenant-keeping. It's about faithfulness. People say, well, you know, those patriarchs, they, they took more than one wife and they were running around with concubines and doing all this. It doesn't seem like the Bible's teaching very strongly about monogamous marriage. And I say, well, every one of those examples you see, if you will trace it, has negative consequences. And quite often the Bible teaches simply by way of negative example. Here's what happens if you won't respect the one man, one woman relationship. And you see it. All the the difficulties spilling out through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their generations after them. But the Bible is also written for the real world. And it does not hold up cast-in-concrete ideals that neglect the sinfulness of man and woman within marriage. And so there are actually stated exceptions that allow for divorce in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to go into this in any great detail this morning, but just remind you, Jesus spoke of the first and the classic one in Matthew 5.32 and 19.9, almost in identical words, when he said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality commits adultery. In other words, if you just walk away from a marriage and enter into another one without this qualifying cause you're committing adultery. But there is a qualifying cause, and it is, in these words, except for sexual immorality. Many of us believe the critical Greek word porneia, root of pornography, is correctly understood in a broad way. It's more than just a physical act between a man and a woman he's not married to. Many of us believe that word can cover any expression of sexual intimacy, fulfilling your sexuality with another other than in the marriage bed. That includes a computer console, men. That includes a computer console, men. That includes homosexual expressions. If you seek... Fulfillment of sexuality outside of the marriage bed. The wife or whoever the other party is, husband or wife, is given the license to divorce by the Lord Jesus Christ. Then secondly, of course, there's the classic in 1 Corinthians 7.15 that allows for divorce when a non-believer abandons. Leaves is the classic word, the key word. When they leave, what does that mean? That's a really interesting and long and detailed debate. Do you have to walk out of the home with a suitcase to leave a marriage? I know people who've left it and are still living within the four walls for decades, but they left the covenant a long, long time before. These things require wise discernment and counselors to apply. But here's Joseph brooding over all this, knowing what the law says, knowing that the letter of the law said, Joseph, you can get out of this. And Joseph said in his mind, 
I'm going to get out of it. How do I do it with the minimum of damage? I don't want to hurt this young woman any more than she's already hurt or has to be hurt. How can I do that? Then comes the revelation of God. God speaks in dreams to Joseph more than once. This time, critically, again, telling him to to get away from uh, Bethlehem to avoid Herod's rage, and then again, telling him to come back from Egypt. Three times, God revealed himself by dreams. Study dreams sometimes as a vehicle of God's revelation. He doesn't reveal himself in every dream that everybody ever has, but he does use dreams in other significant places in the Bible. Now, here's a man a carpenter, a craftsman who made furniture and put rafters and roofs on houses, a common man. He knew the law of God as young Israelite men did, even though he wasn't a scholar. And God was unrolling in this dream to him a little corner of a blueprint for something he could build, and it wasn't a roof or a chair. It was a marriage. And God said, Joseph, you can build a structure that will put safety and protection around Mary, that will provide a shelter for my son on earth until he's ready to undertake his errand. And Joseph included in that must have been, because it must have been Joseph that brought to mind of Matthew as this thing was reported and handed down orally to Matthew, that the scripture of Isaiah 7.14 that is quoted in our passage A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Joseph somehow grasped in God's blueprint open to him why this thing is the fulfillment of Scripture leading to the Messiah. And that was enough to convince a righteous, Bible-honoring man who you see stood very tall from that moment on. A hero enters this story. A man who said, if Mary's going to have dishonor or shame or, or skeptical, sly things said about her behind the back fences of Nazareth, I'm going to share in everything that's said about her. I will take her shame, whatever it is, on me. A common man who doesn't even speak in the page of Scripture stood tall and became the hero of this situation. And do you see the little thing subtly told to you in this story too? It was through Joseph that Jesus got his name. Joshua, Yeshua, because he'll save his people. Who conferred that name? Not Mary. Joseph. In obedience to God. One little man, common, blue-collar craftsman, changed history. Now I want to turn to an application. One singular application. I think that this story of Joseph should do much to encourage anyone who's struggling within their marriage covenant. And I'm quite sure. I don't have a list of names in front of me, but I'm just quite sure that there are many struggling within their marriage covenant within the sound of my voice. And I want to encourage you today to see in Joseph a balance between rights and righteousness in our marital conduct. Joseph was was within his rights to seek a divorce, at least as far as he knew, as far as he understood, 
some adultery must have taken place or Mary wouldn't be pregnant. And, and in other words, in all the visible human circumstances, he was within his rights. He didn't know the true circumstance, but visibly, openly, he said, God allows me to do this. And it may well be that I'm talking to you as a person who says, my spouse, my partner in life has sinned against me. And I'm thinking I need to bail out because my rights allow me to do it. Well, it may well be that that circumstance is on your side. But I want to caution you. I want to caution you especially not to believe the world's definition of marriage, which says that it is simply a civil contract. It is a civil contract. You can't get married without the permission of the state. You can't be unmarried without the permission of the state. But it's more than a civil contract. For a believer in Christ, a marriage is a covenant before God. When I preside at a wedding that happens about 15 feet from where I'm standing, you know, I'm very aware of a whole swirl of circumstances that surround a wedding. All kinds of arrangements. You know, before we even book the church, we book where's the reception going to be. Uh, that's a tough one these days. And uh, what are the flowers going to be like? And the dresses? And who's in the wedding? And what, will, what music will be played? And all these wonderful things that make a wedding a great day in people's lives. I'm not deriding any of them. But like a laser beam at the center of all that swirl is a vow. That's the part I'm in charge of. And I always charge the couple and say, look, you're about to say to each other the most important words that you will ever speak in your life because you are vowing something until death do you part before Almighty God. And there's nothing you will ever say to another person more important than what you're saying here. And God will hold you to it because it's a covenant. And I call to you if you're in a troubled marriage today or a marriage that's just starting to feel some of the cracks and squeaks and hard rubs in the wrong direction, that you stop and think about your covenant responsibilities. Now, civilly, and even in terms of Scripture, you might have one of those exceptions that says, oh, I see I can get out of this. I can leave. In fact, I'll go consult the pastor to make sure. And he says, yep, your husband has committed adultery. The Bible gives you the right to be married and be free but is that what you should immediately do? Or should you rather consider action like that of Joseph? Not as your first resort saying, I will pull the ripcord and leave the plane and have a soft landing, but rather that I will talk to myself and say something like this. If my life is not in danger, if I can abide staying in this relationship, I will, as a child of God, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, God in his eternal covenant bound himself to me, pursued me, gave himself for me, sacrificed for me when I was unwilling to know him or care for him. Isn't that what I need to do as far as it is humanly possible in this relationship before I do what the letter of the law allows? Have I really prayed for my spouse? in a persistent, passionate, daily way? Have I really confessed my own sin that certainly is part of whatever's wrong? Have I sought to love this other person until 
It hurts to love when you're not being loved back, and that does hurt. Have I sacrificially laid myself down like Joseph, submitting my own rights, striving for reconciliation, and only after pursuing that vow for some period of time to the utmost of my ability, only when I have done that will I come and finally say, the Bible does permit me to divorce. Go to a wise counselor. Pastors have been through this with many, many people. And you know, there are times when we've actually had to say to a husband or a wife, especially a wife, sometimes a a Christian wife trying to be obedient, trying to be submissive, will do this for years and years and years and submit herself to abuse when the pastor's even going to say, my dear, it's time for you to cut this off. And the pastor will say that if he thinks that's God's leading and God's wisdom. But he will also ask you, what have you done first? Have you really sought to be the vehicle of Christ and the Holy Spirit in your marriage with a selfless devotion that is rooted in grace? Do you see how Joseph was a demonstration of grace? He had every right to walk away. His reputation would be unstained. There goes Joseph. Oh, too bad about that girl who betrayed him that he almost married. But Joseph, what an upright man. He would have been that if he had just gone with the letter of the law. But look what he is because he laid down his life in grace for his wife. Ephesians 5 is, of course, the great text about marriage. Every sentence in Ephesians 5 practically throbs with challenge for a husband and wife. But it begins on this basis with a simple statement for both partners Submit yourselves one to the other out of reverence for Christ. Now you say, I can't submit myself to this guy who won't even acknowledge Christ or try to obey him and and acts the way he does towards me. No, submit yourself out of reverence for Christ toward him. There may be the day that that has to come to an end. But have you done that first? Joseph teaches every Christian husband and wife to act out character. Do you see what it says about him? I I have underlined in my Bible in verse 24. I, I underline, some people don't like to mark Bibles. Mine's all marked up. Verse 24, I double underlined, he did. He did. He acted on exactly what God told him to do. Have we done that? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's an example of that kind of faithfulness. Honoring God in a covenant vow that changed the history of the world. One lowly man who made a marriage that almost wasn't into a safe haven for the Savior of the world to be sheltered in his childhood. Joseph is the one that got Jesus out of the way of the massacre in Bethlehem who took him to Egypt and then brought him back to Nazareth and guided that life. Joseph, the carpenter. You know, the marvel of Jesus being both God and man, he was truly human. He had to learn his alphabet. Fathers taught their sons these things. Joseph, the carpenter, undoubtedly sat with Hebrew scrolls or whatever they had and taught his little son to read the Word of God 
I'm astonished at that. The Savior who was present at creation, learning to read Hebrew at the knee of a carpenter. God uses humble people who will obey his calling and his covenant. Now, I repeat to you, I have no desire to load guilt on someone who has already divorced. And I know I'm talking to many of you who have been through tremendous pain. Many of you who are to be commended because you have taken that decision wisely and slowly. But if you're in some circumstance of life where this is even beginning to develop as a small thought in the back of your mind, will you think of Joseph? Will you think of being a conduit of the grace and mercy of God towards your partner before you call the attorneys who are advertising on the back of the phone book most eager for your business? They're eager. God is eager for something different. Eager for you to learn sacrificial love. Laying your life down as Jesus Christ laid his life down for you. And you can imitate his own grace and forgiveness and be his vehicle in a kind of humble and holy warfare. Not the warfare that that takes weapons against your spouse and pounds on them. A warfare of overwhelming them with grace. You know where Paul talked about heaping coals of fire on the head of the person who seems like an enemy to you by being so gracious to them that you might even overcome them that way. Husbands and wives, you most likely will remain, like me, unknown to the annals of future history. You won't be famous the way Joseph. You won't have hospitals named for you the way Joseph does. You won't have churches being called St. Joseph Church. But you have the opportunity to be a hero or heroine of God's grace and mercy, and I tell you that the place where you can exercise that wonderful ministry is your marriage, and the time to start doing it is today, depending on the grace of God. Our Father, I ask you, not as a New Year's resolution, because those are the most foolish of all things. The idea that we are going to change ourselves and be new in the new year because of a determined human effort is folly. We will be new only as you make us new. We will have grace and mercy to do these things that Joseph did only if you give it. And so we lean on you, we look to you, we cry out to you, and I cry for those today who are in the midst and who are twisted in their mind and their thoughts and their spirit by marital pain. Make us uncommon vessels of your grace so you will get the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.